You're always thinking about fo- Greg, what are your hot takes about this weekend in football? Go. I, I'm glad you asked because I just tuned into Monday Night Football to see our beloved Patriots eviscerate the New York Jets. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. so good. Oh, yeah. yes. Got me so wet. <laughs> I As it should because um, it did get – it was great to see a, a lovely performance by one Sam Darnold. Um in case you didn't know, he he performed terribly. He's the Jets quarterback, former USC grad, USC terrible school, hate it. Um, I'm glad he's doing poorly, and had mo- and suffered from mono earlier this season. However, John, little cherry on top of uh, just a wonderful football game. Mm. Did you know at halftime they premiered in a bit of synergistic uh, pride among the Disney Corporation? They premiered the latest and last trailer for. Star Wars, colon, The Rise of Skywalker. See, that's a little unfair to call it the last trailer. I know there's going to be more footage coming out long before December. So Exactly. To, yeah, to, it's it's yeah. marketing speak, creating urgency, saying, oh, this is the last, this is it. So mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry I just parroted that language. I, I apologize. Mm. I mean, we're all, we're all slaves to capitalism, so we can't help yep. ourselves. <sighs> I know, but... I don't want to talk about the trailer. Instead, I want to talk about the feelings it invoked. Okay. And what's amazing is that this two-minute and 30-second video elicited far more emotions than I know the final product ever will. (laughs) So, in reality, I think movies should just become trailers. You know what? I think we can all agree that that's really the direction, especially for, like, uh, the WB. Like, for Warner Brothers, absolutely. Because they just came out with that... uh, that amazing uh, Harley Quinn movie, and that movie's going to be complete shit because they're like, "What if Suicide Squad, but women this time?" Yeah. <laughs> and it's like the result can never match that trailer because that trailer was incredible, and it's like of it course. told the whole story there in an efficient two and a half minutes. So we're done. Like we don't need to see the movie now. Thank you. Yeah. Also, don't even get me started using the Birds of Prey moniker, but making it about Harley Quinn. It's like, oh, don't. Oh, it just it got my nerve rage boiling. Let me tell you. Yeah, and I also am somewhat disappointed that I didn't express what a perfect trailer song that Edith Piaf's Hymn d'Amour would make, mm-hmm. and exactly. I'm, I'm mad that somebody else got a, got there before me. Um, mm-hmm. Not that I'm cutting together trailers anytime soon, but... I mean, yep. it's it's the easiest job and the best job, honestly. I mean, yeah. if, I were, if I were to have any job in Hollywood that I would desire, it would be cutting together trailers. Yeah, oh, it's... I see job postings for the trailer house. They're they're doing nothing but hiring lately. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I'm sure they just get a deluge, a flood of applicants for every job they have. Mm. Because it is the most desirable. Post-production is easy. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, wouldn't trailers count as like pre-production? Or I guess it would be no. post-production because it's... Yes, they but get because they get all the raw footage. unfinished footage. Yeah. Yes. So ooh. that's the challenge: is that they get unfinished footage, and so you have Wear to comb gloves, through. Wash your yeah. hands. <laughs> keep your workstation clean. So you have to comb through about three hours. However, to c- cut it down to only two and a half minutes, perfect. I mean, mm-hmm. compared to taking Suicide Squad, I, I don't envy Trailer House for having to cut together whatever was left of Suicide Squad, but. I mean, we've all seen the folding ideas video, so I mean, we can we can chalk that to. I haven't. I oh, you haven't? I don't know. That's what he's actually one of his about, better but... videos. You should probably check it okay. out. If all you only right. had to check out one folding ideas video, it's probably that one. Okay. Yeah. Because again, Fair it's, enough. it's it's more than just him standing off off center on, on a, in a void, <laughs> yeah. talking to you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But again, I don't want to just talk about trailers. I, I 
I wanted to have a discussion about the emotional reaction I had to it and mm-hmm. how much more effective that is than whatever J.J. Abrams will put out in the final product. I, no, I'm of course. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what that means for the future of movies, but it's clear that the uh, film was the 20th century art form and uh, <laughs> it's never coming back. It'll never be better again. <laughs> So that's I mean, my cynical view. But John, let's let's cast our our eyes back to okay. its heyday, the twentieth century, mm-hmm. when film was really dominant. Now it's I don't know snaps and uh, <laughs> Instagram stories. Yes, <laughs> those are the stories. So so that's really the the the, the, the impetus, the cause celebre of this particular podcast you're listening to, Aspiring Snobs, where we attempt to fill out our film bona fides by catching up on a classic movie that you or I haven't seen yet. Yes, exactly. And it's also Halloween. So obviously we're doing all sorts of kind of spooky movies or spooky adjacent movies this past month. And uh, I'm kind of surprised because this was actually your suggestion, even though it is completely the opposite of your wheelhouse. What's the opposite (laughs) of a wheelhouse? A square shack? A square, yes. (laughs) This this was a square in my square shack. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, we're moving through the decades. If you tuned into previous episodes, we moved from The Blob to Rosemary's Baby to then Carrie. And again, we had a, a whole glut of horror movies to pick from the 80s, particularly slasher movies. However, I thought, come on, let's you and I aren't huge horror aficionados. We don't like to be scared or off-put in any way. Uh, we're not gore hounds either. So come on, let's have some fun. Exactly. And what's more yeah. fun than a... Uh, adaptation of a Roger Corman film turned into an off-Broadway musical directed by a former Muppet. Like, there's no, yeah. there's, the, there's no part of that sentence that isn't lovable. So exactly, that's why this week we decided to revisit the 1986 musical comedy *Little Shop of Horrors*. Someone show me a way to get out of here, because I constantly pray I'll get out of here. Won't somebody say I'll get out of here? Someone give me my shot or I'll rot here. Downtown, downtown. Start climbing up hill and get out of here. Someone tell me I still could get out of here. Someone tell Lady Luck that I'm stuck here. She'd shoot me swell to get out of here. Bid the gutter farewell and get out Those pianos just coming in right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Folks, get on your feet. <laughs> I, also now, want to, I also want to point out, you, you only mentioned two names there. Mm-hmm. Uh, two legends, Roger Corman and Frank Oz. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that every other like person worked on this, every other person you admire worked on this movie. <laughs> um, from star Rick Moranis to supporting players Steve Martin, John Candy, Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. And, and James from, Belushi. Yes, and, well, yes. <laughs> the, probably the, the, the shiningest star of all. <laughs> Comedy legend Jim Belushi. Exactly. I didn't know this going into the movie, looking at the credits. This musical was produced by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. Mm-hmm. 
Now, people may not know those names, but, uh, hey, you remember The Little Mermaid, Aladdin? That's these guys. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's fair to say they moved on to even bigger and better things. (laughs) Well, I think it's because they have an eye for uh, this originally, again, I was not kidding that this originally started as an off-Broadway play. Um, Because believe it or not, like adapting a a Roger Corman B-movie as a musical was kind of a hard sell. So, I can kind of see someone with kind of an eye for the underground kind of seeing this and realizing that it could be something more and while i do think that this movie is not largely forgotten i definitely don't think that it shares the same level of prestige or rememberability as the original broadway production which a lot of the cast even though you were kind of uh presenting all the kind of big hollywood players that ended up in this movie it yeah. still uh brings along a lot of people from the original Broadway production, most notably Ellen Green, who reprises her role as Audrey. Yeah, I know they wanted a really big name star like Madonna or whoever, whatever blonde actress, but I, I am glad that they retained the original, uh, broad, the the woman who originated the role, that's the word I'm looking for, <laughs> the woman who originated the role. However, I guess I guess we'll get into the kind of the nitty gritty details. I really wanted to know where exactly this play like came from. Mm. I think Little Shop of Horrors had a cult following, as many Roger Corman movies did. I mean, it's practically the impetus for Mystery Science Theater three thousand is Roger Corman's filmography. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what what exactly uh, caught the eye of producer David Geffen. That's the other huge <laughs> name I should have said. <laughs> Who then went to Ashman and Macon and said, like, hey, write silly mu- silly music about this pretty silly horror movie from 30 years ago. I, I can see the nostalgia cycle kind of coming up, but to then turn it into a huge Broadway play. Like, I wish I'd, I'd seen the story behind it because, yeah, gosh, it, t- it takes guts and, and ingenuity and creativity to really make this work. And it did. It really worked for me. <laughs> I'm not... A- Longtime listeners will know I'm not a huge musical person, but damn, it's it's extremely well done, very funny in parts, and if, thankfully for me, lacking in a lot of the other annoying uh, musical qualities that I find. Oh. It's a short, skint, 90 minutes, and I liked it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, as a big fan of the original play, of the original musical, um, I do enjoy this movie quite a bit, but I do kind of have my minor quibbles with the with the changes that they made in adaptation. Um, just... Oh, excuse me. Wait, 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 wait. John, reveal your... Tell us your story. Have you seen this play live? Like... <laughs> I have not seen this play live, but I've listened to the soundtrack how can at you be least a, a thousand times. Okay, and fine. I'm a little disappointed at the songs that they decided to cut. And just kind of like the little changes that they've made in adaptation. However... Frank Oz, it must be noted. Well, John, well, stop there. A little what? adaptation. There's one giant one at the end. Well, yes, <laughs> we'll, we'll get, get to it. it. We'll get to it. I yeah. wasn't going to get into the details until we actually start laboriously going over the plot. <laughs> yeah. But um, Frank Oz knows his way around a camera. Uh, this was still kind of very early in his career. He was still trying to kind of uh, break out into the scene. Uh, obviously, yeah. he, his career was as a puppeteer of one Miss Piggy and Fonzie Bear. <laughs> and so uh, in the 80s, he tried very hard to... He was a co-director on one of the... Uh, original Muppet movies but he and obviously that's probably one of the reasons why he was attached to this project as well as like well here's someone who knows his way around puppets or at least has the patience for them <laughs> so yeah. he um, wanted to move into mainstream movies and kind of had to work and his what way up. better project to get up behind <laughs> for mainstream movies <laughs> the mainstream movies John did you not remember the cast I just listed I Steve guess, Martin, Bill but Murray, I don't think, I, John but Candy. I also don't think that this movie made a whole lot of money 
No, it cost a whole lot of money. <laughs> yes. But, uh, no, it wasn't a huge. It it wasn't a huge box office hit because yeah, I think Broadway audiences and and film audiences are are not vastly different, but uh, significantly different, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll get to when we actually start talking about the story. So it's 1960 New York, mm-hmm. grungy, grimy, bad, and um, you know the the, the there's a Greek chorus. Uh, I yes. didn't know. I thought I thought um, Hercu- the Hercules animated movie originated this idea. Turns out, no. Um, <laughs> you've got three brassy, sassy uh, black uh, singers, extremely talented, uh, kind of commenting on the action, and they and they uh, introduce this little curio shop filled with plants. Exactly, and I love the use of kind of in-camera trickery to kind of make them seem so phantasmagorical my favorite early effect in the opening number is the fact that it starts raining but they don't get yeah. wet like i yeah. still don't to this day no figure out how they did that i'm sure i can yeah. book it up but well I'm trivia just... frank oz did reveal that they they did get wet um, oh they did oh okay. <laughs> yeah they tried their best to yeah make them seem otherworldly in terms of uh, putting a disc over them so that they wouldn't get wet but they did but oh, okay. it's fine it's yeah. fine it's fine <laughs> yeah it's fine it's fine again very well done <laughs> But yes, they are the. Uh, their names are Crystal Ronnet and uh, Shifton. I, I don't know. I can't pronounce yeah, it. Anyway, nice, yeah. but yeah, there are Greek chorus, and they're the kind of these uh, very phantasmic oracle figures. They're constantly changing costumes or kind of being in spaces that they don't really belong. And again, it's a testament to kind of Frank Oz's great direction. The fact that he kind of moves his camera around this very limited set. Uh, it feels very stagey, but again, that's kind of the point. Well, limited. They. It's all artificial like, mm-hmm. I, I think that's clear i mean they did their best to make it look like a, a genuine new york street however it was all built in pinewood studios and it was impossible to heat in the winter so <laughs> they had to they had to act with the um, ice cubes in their mouth so that their breath wouldn't appear on screen like yeah i mean they they still did it to the nines but yeah there are some like limitations in which how much choreography they could do Mm-hmm. Um, for the opening numbers, it works, but uh, I, there are some other scenes that are a bit limited. She said, my boy, I think someday you'll find a way to make your natural tendencies pay. You'll be a dentist. You have a talent for causing things. Some be a dentist. People will pay you to be your temperament's wrong for the priesthood, and teaching would suit you still less. Some be a dentist, you'll be a success. Here he is, folks, the leader of the class. Watch him suck up that gas. Oh my God! He's a dentist that he'll never ever be. Who wants their teeth done by the Marquis de Sade? Oh, that hurts! Wait, I'm not numb! Uh, shut up. Open wide. Here I come! I am your dentist. And I enjoy the career that I pick. I'm your dentist. And I get off on the pain I inflict. I drill when I drill a bicuspid. It's swell, though they tell me I'm that's kind of i think one of the criticisms you could levy against this film which i think a lot of musicals do is when it's we're to the point of recitative to use an opera term the point where Mm -hmm. we're not singing it does feel a little stagey and a little boring and a little kind of 
you expect a certain level of over-the-top campiness for sing-songy scenes, but when they're, you know, supposed to be just kind of, like, acting straight, it can seem a little kind of jarring, um, especially given kind of the subject matter, because uh, we, well, let's just introduce our cast of characters. We've got Rick yeah. Moranis as Seymour Krellborn, who is an orphan, a, a kid of the street, who's been taken in by Mr. Mushnik. Uh, mm-hmm. That's kind of his adopted father. And uh, he has eyes for uh, a fellow worker at the... Uh, at the flower shop, that would be Audrey, but Audrey's in a abusive relationship with one uh, Oren Scavillo DDS. <laughs> yes, we'll get to well, yeah, we'll get to the DDS later, um, <laughs> and I think my favorite number, but yeah, um, yeah, business is terrible, and that's when Seymour brings out uh, this little plant that he that he brought up, and as he explains in song, he went to Chinatown, um, the, the, the land of exotic uh, <laughs> exotic curios. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe, maybe we could, it, I guess Gremlins came out two years earlier. <laughs> America hadn't gotten over that that, that specific brand of racism. Nope. Uh, but, yeah, he reveals, like, uh, hey, I got this curious plant, let's put it in the window. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Mr. Mushnik says, no way. Um, but this is where I, I got my first guffaws, um, gosh, I forgot about that. He's in the cast too. Christopher Guest then arrives, <laughs> and my favorite laugh line in the movie: "Like, hello, I couldn't help but notice your your fascinating plant." <laughs> and, so, and again, like it's hilarious the way it's done, but the fact that it is Christopher Guest just just that icing on the cake, that mwah, chef's kiss. <laughs> <laughs> and so we kind of set up the plot from there, which is this is a story of Faust. This is a Faustian yeah. bargain, ultimately, is what this story is. Um, as the plot progresses, uh, Seymour realizes that he needs to feed this plant blood, but this plant is kind of the lifeblood in and of itself of the shop. The only reason the shop becomes successful is because everyone's interested in this plant. And so at first, he's just kind of feeding him his own blood, but as the plant gets bigger, uh, it starts wanting a, a little more fresher meat, shall we say? That's one of the mm-hmm. other kind of odd things I think also people forget about this show. The plant starts talking, but it doesn't really start talking until well into the play, like halfway, probably not until the midpoint, which... For me, if you have a giant talking plant, that should really be kind of a first act twist, not like wait until the very end. Don't sit on that. I yeah, I can I can kind of see that. Unfortunately, I couldn't see this with fresh eyes. I knew there was a talking plant who mm-hmm. presented this Faustian bargain, and yeah, like how much kind of creative restraint do you portray in that, or is it an actual limitation with how much puppetry they can do either live or in camera? I got to say, once Audrey 2, the plant does start talking, again, I was absolutely floored. Mm-hmm. I thought, how the heck did they do that? And yeah, I had kind of my innocence broken when I see, well, they doubled the speed of the footage so that it looks like it's, it much it's talking smoother. at the, yeah, it's talking at the space uh, or at the pace that the voice actor is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like, but again, in terms of like extremely well done practical effect, like, yeah, it's an A plus job there. The one thing I want to push back on, and I think also why I admire this movie, and you should too, is it's not just a Faustian bargain, John, but it's also about class struggle. That is also true, yes. That is definitely a a big component of the story. Uh, They live on Skid Row, which, not Mm -hmm. like the L.A. Skid Row, it's kind of more of a a derelict uh, New York borough, I guess. Again, like I almost forgot to mention how amazing the opening number is, watching all these trudge, these homeless people trudge through the streets, and then they all start breaking out into song. But, you know, it's still like they're the underclass, but they're still kind of like with great bravado, you know, announcing the fact that they all live on Skid Row. <laughs> you know, there's a great contrast in imagery there. 
Yep. And that's all. The working class is really represented by Seymour, mm -hmm. who is like assistant to a small business tyrant. <laughs> um, it's kind of under the thumb of his boss. And in order to gain the financial and stability that he seeks, he has to literally give blood, like mm. give of himself um, in order to achieve this Faustian bargain. Much in the same way blue-collar workers give their bodies um, for, <laughs> towards basically the profits of a, of a higher class. Uh, so, yeah, you can read it as a, as a story of a class struggle. And also, the uh, again, I don't know a whole lot about musicals, but there is an I Want <laughs> song mm -hmm. in which uh, the, the characters just basically tell you <laughs> what their motivation is. And in this case, it's, it's Someplace Green. Yes. Um, which is a, a kind of a, a somewhat self-aware, kind of cheesy facsimile of a suburban home. Um, the green being the lawn and, and white picket fence and 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 kind of that, that dream of, of white flight um, in the 60s. <laughs> in the pine so scented air, somewhere that's Well, it's also it's 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 obviously meant to be ironic, but also quite sad. So it's sung yeah. by Audrey, and she's kind of stuck in this abusive relationship. And so, when she does get this chance to sing her kind of "I Want" song, her truest fantasies are so benign and lame. Like you know, a fence, <laughs> a real chain link. There's yeah. plastic on the furniture to keep it nice and clean. Like, and obviously, it's it's meant to be kind of joking the fact that this was like the ideal of class back in the 50s but it's also like yeah. this is audrey's idea of like ultimate class is just kind of like sad and it just goes to show that she can't see better for herself and you know obviously the biggest laugh line in that song is like we're watching i love lucy on our enormous 12 inch screen <laughs> yeah. you know kind of making fun of the the limitations of technology back then but yeah it's it's meant to be kind of tragic the fact that she doesn't picture a better world for herself yeah now one thing I didn't understand, and maybe you can speak to this, mm -hmm. being more familiar with the entire uh, soundtrack, mm -hmm. is in this fantasy, she's picturing herself with Seymour, mm -hmm. but she's still in the relationship with this abusive boyfriend. Yeah. So is there is there a touch earlier, maybe was there a scene or song cut out in which like it's clear that both Seymour and Audrey have this attraction to one another, and they feel like it can't make it work or no is that just something that yeah is that just something that we kind of toss off and know that yeah they're going to wind up together or? well on the stage show i'm pretty sure they don't go into the whole fantasy sequence of it just due to the limitations of it being a stage show they obviously can't like bring out a whole new set that's like out of homes and gardens so yeah. 
I think for the movie, they had to kind of introduce this idea that she is living, you know, in suburban bliss, but she has to have a husband there. And it would be too incongruous if we had Steve Martin's character there. So they, you yeah. see more just a kind of fa- a facsimile, but at this point, yes, in the play, they're not meant to really be together. And she doesn't really, I think she start like that song is meant to kind of be a precursor to when she does start having eyes for him and realizing that he is a good mate to her. But yeah, before then, she doesn't really see him as a potential partner. Yeah, let's let's get to Steve Martin's character. Yeah, uh, I think my favorite aspect of the movie. <laughs> um, he's he's first presented as a bad boy, a greaser, mm-hmm. but in just the inimitable, exceptional style of Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. <laughs> he says, like you know, he as he explains in song in verse, like you know, my mom wanted a better life for me, and she said, you know what you're gonna be. Bust in the room, match cut to, now he's in a white coat. You're going to be a dentist. Yep. <laughs> and, yeah, I have no idea what the inspiration for that was, other than people just not liking dentists. Like, I thought he could have been a lawyer or a politician <laughs> or some other hated profession. But the fact that it's a dentist in so left field, it just shows, like, I, how how willing I was to go with uh, this movie, even though there there's some, like, grotesque elements. Like, there's a great shot of POV through somebody's mouth. Yep. And it's clear that they Another built a giant... Another massive puppet that they used. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, again, it's my favorite number. Um, just incredibly well done. And I wish his character was around more, and maybe they could tie in the fact that he was a dentist, because it doesn't have a whole lot of bearing on the plot other than him just liking to inflict pain. Well, no, the the important point for that character is the fact that he is meant to be a sacrificial lamb. He's supposed to be the person that Seymour, yeah. like an easy target for Seymour to kill and feel justified with. And again, but, but he doesn't really kill him. He has the whole gas masks fiasco, so he can kind yeah. of still be justified and still be a good person in our eyes. Maybe that's why he's a dentist, so that you can have this accidental death via nitrous oxide. Yeah, that's definitely part of it as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, on another viewing, it still feels really incongruous, because again, this is meant to be like kind of a lighthearted, campy musical, but then he's beating Audrey like it's 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 obfuscated well like you know we see it kind of happening in between like through silhouettes or something like that but it's still kind of like it it made me feel icky and also I just can't buy Steve Martin as that much of a jerk (laughs) believe it or not he was in a movie called The Jerk but um I mean it's still a lot of fun you're absolutely right there's no denying it I just think maybe another actor who was who had maybe more of a if, if it were Jim Belushi, then I would have totally bought it, and I would have been so happy when he died, so... <laughs> now, come on. Jim Jim Belushi is relatively inoffensive, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say, we, we want him to live. Um, <laughs> parody, parody about Jim Belushi dying, but... Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so that's the... And that that stays true to the uh, to the original stage play, is that uh, yeah. the dentist accidentally dies, so Seymour is still kind of like in a morally right place but then the next death is mr mushnik his adoptive father this is kind of where there's a little bit of the change in the adaptation because um one of the songs they cut out is mushnik and son it's this very kind of like yiddish sounding tune where mushnik Mm -hmm. basically uh changes the name of the shop to mushnik and son basically officially making seymour his son and it's meant to be like a big moment like he finally kind of 
at least pretending like they're equals. Obviously, they're not. Mr. Mushnick's yeah. a pretty reprehensible character most of the time. But one of the other changes that they make is that, you know, Mr. Mushnick tries to blackmail him kind of at the last minute before he tries to arrest, you know, make a citizens of refs of Seymour. Yeah, because as far as he knows, it looks like Seymour has killed the dentist. Mm-hmm. But of course, he doesn't really know about the plant or anything like that. Yeah. And I think one of the other changes that they make is that Seymour kind of lets the plant eat him as opposed to like being an active participant in the plant eating him. Well, yeah, that's what I was wondering is... I mean, because he's played by Rick Moranis. He's going to be sympathetic no matter exactly. what. <laughs> I'm talking blood, Krellborn. I'm talking under my own roof. An axe murderer. He's got your number now. I saw everything. He knows just what you've done. Everything you did to a boyfriend. You've got no place to hide. I saw you chopping. You've got nowhere to run. It's true. I chopped him up. But I didn't kill him! He knows your life apart! Talk to the police! I think it's supper time! Come on, come on! Think about all those offers! Come on, come on! Your future with Audrey! Come on, come on! Ain't no time to turn squids! Come on! I swear on all my spores! When he's gone, the world will be yours. Yours. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, I was wondering in the adaptation, did they give Seymour this out to basically say, like, oh, it's the plant that killed Mr. Mushnick? Yes, absolutely. Or, okay. They definitely does soften. He, they definitely yeah. soften um, Seymour a little bit more. They make him kind of. A, I mean, he's always a putz, but uh, you know, it's a Faust story. So obviously he has to kind of be in the wrong. And my biggest problem with the adaptation is they cut short my favorite song of the whole musical, The Meek Shall Inherit. Um, You get a little bit of it. You know, it's that moment when he starts signing deals. Um, You know, honey, baby, pussycat, have we got a deal for you? Here, sign this contract. (laughs) And you see, and you know, they go by and they're all secretaries. You know, The Meek Shall Inherit? That's a much longer song. And it's actually a big moment for Seymour because my future's starting. I'd better let it. And it's like, he, he... He's conflicted, you know, the the song is ultimately about him being like, no, I must, the plant must be destroyed, but then there's Audrey, and then he kind of, he, yeah. he recommits, he makes the moral mistake of being like, no, ultimately I have to keep this plant alive, I have to keep killing in order to make Audrey happen, and, or happy. And what's great about the song is, you know, it, it it recapitulates that tune. You know the meek shall inherit. You know the book doesn't lie. And it's it becomes like a bummer version of that. And it's it's a reaffirmation of, and in the final line of the song, you know, you're going to get what's coming to you. Like, it's meant to be foreshadowing that he is going to be eaten by the plant. Yes. And that he is going to get his comeuffins for giving his soul to this devil. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that's not how the movie plays out, so I understand why they cut it. But I'm a little, dis- I'm really disappointed because I really love that song because it works on so many levels, not just narratively speaking, but also character-wise speaking. So, well, let's get to that ending. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I had to do some and where things fall apart. <laughs> yeah, well, I, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. So, I had to do some digging and see which, because famously, I think now part of this movie's cult appeal is that there oh there's a lost ending as well mm-hmm. so it seems like a like a mysterious treasure that film fans have to find but um in the in the original broadway play 
Um, as you said, this is a Faustian bargain, so Seymour has to suffer the consequences or has his have mm-hmm. his soul taken. Yep. Basically, as in this Faustian bargain, so he does get eaten by the plant, and the plant does as as he promises, uh, take over the whole world, mm-hmm. take over basically the whole theater. Now. As Frank Oz like astutely pointed out, then there's a curtain call. Basically, uh, the the characters playing Audrey and Seymour are fine, and they, yeah. they take their bow and they wave goodbye. Um, oh well, and in also, the original in the original recording, there you know the final song is "Don't Feed the Plants," and even all the characters who have been eaten at that point come out and still like sing a line from that song. Like it's very clear yeah. that yes, they're not really dead. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and also, I mean. The plant, as far as I understood, comes out into the audience, so that's what makes it fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like in a, yes, it's very uh, scary to have this uh, alien creature basically take over the take over the entire Earth, but it's it's fun. It's part of the Broadway interactive experience. Mm-hmm. Um, they did a test screening with the with that ending, and it failed miserably, and for two reasons, as Frank Oz like pointed out, like one. You don't get that curtain call. You don't get, you know, <laughs> Seymour has been pretty much, whole. Uh, Seymour and Audrey have been likable the whole time. They've been bullied. And, yeah, you never see them, like, you never really see their evil side. So it just no, seems, yeah. like, the, the movies work too hard for us to root for them, to then yeah. just kind of, like, kill them. It did, it would feel really incongruous. Yeah. So it would just seem cruel for them to, to die. But also, I thought, you, you are missing that audience interactive moment. Mm-hmm. Like, movies are fascistic they can only kind of end one way mm-hmm. and so to see audrey too who is like portrayed as villainous as uh, the movie's doing the work in portraying him as villainous as he can be so to see him kind of triumph in the end yeah i, I could see how it would make you feel icky mm-hmm. as opposed to the broadway play so yeah from that standpoint didn't work had to spend untold millions more dollars to reshoot the ending. Yeah, because they had to cut the ending, which was the most expensive part of the movie. Yeah. Like, they had miniatures, <laughs> and they were going to do, like, this kind of, like, Godzilla pastiche, where, you know, they have, like, a regular-sized puppet, like, eating, you know, a tiny model city and things like that. So, yeah, yeah it, it, it turned into a whole big fiasco, and you can definitely tell it in the final act of this movie, because it's kind of like jumping through hoops trying to figure out how to, we're going to worm our way out of this, or at least try to make it look, make sense. Uh, the plant tries to convince Audrey to come over, you know, uh, Seymour admits like he wants to run off, he's not going to feed the plant anymore, so the plant uh, conspires to have Audrey come over in... In what By I a feel phone like, call. What, he's yeah. a very smart plant. No, I think this is was the puppeteer showing off. It's like, look, look, we can make yeah. it do. <laughs> <laughs> like it laboriously, even checking if there's change left in the payphone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost eats Audrey, but Seymour comes in and saves the day, and then they escape. They reaffirm that you know they she truly loves him regardless of the the financial situation, and then you know my favorite part, Jim Jim Belushi comes up, <laughs> basically explaining the plant evil scheme is going to take over the world and it it doesn't really work although you do get that song which was written specifically for the movie big mean mother from outer space so that is a lot of fun (laughs) big mean green mother yeah yeah again great i think closing number and they do arrive at the the green place i guess in terms of a happy ending they get what they want they get Mm -hmm. to uh white flight out to the suburbs (laughs) they get their picket fence away from the inner city yeah yeah (laughs) so i I don't mind that, yeah, like, kind of, it doesn't feel like a, like a director's, like, vision or intent was, like, cruelly ripped away from them, mm-hmm. um, so, and I did like it in terms of having an affirmative happy ending, because, yeah, I, I could see how this is a big, bright 
relatively positive musical in spite of the production design and a few other things like you said basically telling the story of faust in spite of that like i was expecting like a a a, a genial <laughs> affirmative happy ending mm-hmm. but and for it to have for it to end any other way would just make me feel uh, icky and bad. So. I guess that's true, yeah. Especially yeah. given, like, you know, it's got the classic 80s movies credits and your featured players. Yeah. <laughs> you know, doing everything short of, like, the freeze frame, you know, halfway through the scene or whatever. So, yeah, yeah that would feel a little incongruous, I suppose. But I think as a play, it works. So, yeah, I mean, Frank Oz was right in that perspective. play better so i <laughs> well again you haven't seen the you've only heard the soundtrack and you your your quibbles are with the omissions and maybe mm. with some of the adaptation i'm only judging the movie on its own merits because that's that's all i know at this point okay. and i gotta say I'm a, I'm a big fan i really admired it mm-hmm. um and yeah there's a lot there's a lot of laughs and and kind of heartfelt moments that it will take place yes we can quibble about you know maybe the romance isn't established or i didn't like the the number of suddenly Seymour and how it was staged. I think they reused the set from a James Bond movie, mm-hmm. and that's kind of that's kind of a dull number, even though it's a. It. I think they also reprise that for the end. Yeah. And and there's one moment where um, uh, Audrey Two is is shooting at Rick Moranis, and even though it's a six shooter, he actually fires 15 shots. I mean, come on. <laughs> Do they take us for fools? <laughs> When as, Itchy as much pulls as out his uh, rib cage and starts using it as a xylophone, I normally I would subtract two bags from of popcorn from my five bag review. Okay, um, but nope, I'm gonna maintain my rating. I'm gonna say five bags of popcorn. Okay, <laughs> certified fresh by Greg Manzo. Yeah, <laughs> yep. No, it's a fun movie. Uh, it definitely has its charms, and yeah, it's definitely worth seeking out. So. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you appreciated the art of the musical, Greg. I'm glad we're finally getting you to come around. And I'm not there yet. <laughs> uh, give me, give me a little more time. I think. Well, Greg, we've already talked so much about the derelict underclass. I think yeah. I think that ties in perfectly with a recent release that we can both talk about. Absolutely, this movie has already roiled the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, already thrown Twitter into a tizzy and uh, won some golden accolades and many other people are anticipating that it will come Oscar season. Mm-hmm. That's right, we're talking about Maleficent, colon, <laughs> Mistress of Evil. Angelina Jolie does it again. Yes. And- Elle Fanning is back, folks. <laughs> she, look out, supporting actresses, they better watch their backs, all right? Because mm-hmm. this is her year. 
for playing, I guess she's Cin- Cinder- Sleeping Beauty, right? Cinderella? I, I don't know. <laughs> she's Sleeping Beauty, because the, the whole spinning okay. wheel thing, the cursing, and, I, and they, I, she goes I to sleep. I forgot. They all bleed together. It's fine. <laughs> See, that's the thing. No, this, is okay. the, this is the only real kind of adaptation that they're doing. All the rest have just been carbon copies. This one is like an actual different story, so I, I think it deserves more praise than people are giving it, but whatever. Okay. Anywho, no, no. This is this. We're talking about a completely different adaptation, Greg. Yes, we're talking about uh, the the most dangerous threat coming to cinemas <laughs> near you. We're talking about the dang Joker, <laughs> Greg. It's twisted. I I know, far too twisted for me. <laughs> I, I put on my apron, put down my rolling pin, and said, "You stay out of the theaters, people." Now. I do mean that earnestly. Stay out of the theaters, people, for this one. Not because the Joker is dangerous. It's because this movie is dull. It sucks. <laughs> it's boring. I, and a bad time okay. at the movies. I didn't like it. Stop. Stop, 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 stop. Okay. First yeah. of all, let's, let's make this a compliment sandwich. And I will <laughs> start with my first compliment. I am glad yeah. that DC and Warner Brothers is putting out a production that feels like it is a movie first. And is at least, despite Martin Scorsese's opinions, does feel like it is trying to actively be cinema and not be some kind of like brand extension merchandising opportunity. Because that's, you that's know, there was a lot fair. to hate about Suicide, Suicide Squad, but one of the worst aspects was the Joker, which seemed like it was kind of like focus grouped to be like on Hot Topic T-shirts the next day. And so yeah, I do it was appreciate an this movie. Yeah to be for its 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 grandeur to at least be a movie and only a movie so i kind of want to give it credit for that as a movie uh yeah it's not great it's not great <laughs> no i mean if, for reasons i explained i mean do you want to delve into any deeper about the the joker's origin story or um I, here's here's the thing i i say that derisively because we we know, and this is why it's such a it's become such a big commercial hit, we know there's only one way it can go. Exactly. Like, we know that some, this guy is going to turn out to be truly twisted, and of course Bruce Wayne's parents are going to get killed, and so like from the very beginning we know exactly how the story is going to come out. So there... There wasn't any. There wasn't any twists. There wasn't anything clever about it. It was just, yeah, they can end some like little story or thematic touches here, but there's nothing really. There's nothing I wasn't expecting. No, and if anything, there's too much going on. It's like, oh, he's got a condition that makes him <laughs> laugh at awkward situations. He wants to be a stand-up comedian. Oh, yeah. but also in his day job, he's a rent-a-clown. Is there any aspect of his life that wasn't setting him up to be the clown prince of crime one day? <laughs> And no, one of the other things, and even I've, more um, annoyingly, I'm I, sorry, I got to complain about the stupid laugh thing. Oh yeah, what really annoyed me is that they have to make subtext text, like that we literally have to tell you, like, oh, he's got a special condition that uh, it's a, he laughs in appropriate times, or he's got to laugh through his pain, mm-hmm. or like. Um, he has this fantasy. That's the other thing we'll get to later. Oh God! Um, he has this this fantasy of meeting uh, his his favorite comedian, a, a famed uh, late night talk show host, played by Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. And he gets plucked from the crowd and says, "Come on down, son, and, and entertain the folks." And he does. And when they cut to commercial break, he says, "Like, uh, you know, if I if I had a son, I wish he would be just like you." He might as well have said, "Like, you know, I represent a fatherly figure for you, the character." And so that'll come back later, and that'll be a motif that we keep bringing back is is absent father figures. Exactly. Um, yeah. One of the things that really bothers me is that in the reviews I read, um, they were comparing it uh, to falling down. 
and also to a certain extent Fight Club. Um, yeah. This offends me on so many levels because <laughs> Falling Down is one of my favorite movies. And again, going extending it to Fight Club as well. Part of what makes those movies work is the narrative jujitsu that it uh, attacks their audience with because it sets you up to, you know, for you to think that this is the good guy and then narratively flips it on its head. No, this is the bad guy. There's nothing like that in this movie. Because again, like you mentioned, the air of inevitability, but also it's, are we supposed to feel, how sorry are we supposed to feel for him? Because it gives you some kind of moments where, oh, the system is kind of beating him down. Oh, he does kind of feel like a lost, forgotten soul. But also he is mentally ill and he is also kind of selfish and kind of an asshole so yeah um, <laughs> like how how sorry are we supposed to feel for him that's a problem i think too sorry mm. like i think like this is and i think this is why like critics first brought up on the the, the incel aspect of it mm-hmm. it's like it it's got a positive so he's clearly a villain mm-hmm uh, he clearly is supposed to be this, uh, I guess, anarchic force for evil, but like he also has to be the protagonist. You have to root for him to some extent. So they all, it's always posited as, posited as stuff like outside of his control, mm-hmm. like um, the the social services funding getting cut or the fact that he gets beaten on multiple occasions. Um, yeah. First by, and. I know it's trying to tell the story of class in terms of that he's he's a lower class, uh, a working class citizen, and yeah, the funding gets cut, and the only hope seems to be a billionaire who obviously doesn't care for his needs. Mm-hmm. But like it, it, his first encounter is actually with a uh, like just a street gang of teenagers, versus later it's like oh the one percent stockbrokers or something. So as much as this is maybe supposed to be a story of class, it doesn't really engage with those ideas or. No. And like, also, I think, it's like, a, I think it's a shorthand for him to be like a, a, a man of the people and also like a, a, a savior for the common person. I mean, part of me wants to give this movie eviscerations for being like very politically confused, but also like Batman yeah. in and of itself is a pretty politically charged and confused uh, subject. It's about a billionaire <laughs> who beats up people like for a living. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so I don't blame this movie. I, I blame it on the fact that it is coming from a place that's, you know, like quite not sure how to position its main character. It is kind of weird. I mean, everyone else has kind of complained at this this point about it, but it's weird how they kind of position the whole killing of the Wall Street bros. It's kind of like a, a Bernie Getz situation where kind of like when that story was like obviously rife with a lot of like racial tension as well, which this movie does not want yeah. to touch with like a 10 foot pole. Like, and I think that's the whole point of casting and subsequently wasting Yassine beats on this terrible, stupid, like romance quote yeah. unquote that no one believed for a second. <laughs> that no one believed and had no real bearing on the plot other mm-hmm. than to implicate the idea that this, that it's all in his head. Mm-hmm. And like some scenes can take place in reality, and some scenes can't. And then I just realized, okay, so the whole story is without consequence then. Yeah. Because as far as I know, if you're just going to play with my ambiguity, then like obviously I don't know like what matters, like what actually happened and what didn't. Then I guess none of it matters. <laughs> well, and it's also like confusing because obviously the fake romance is meant to kind of tie back in with his mother, who had a you know illusionary romance with Thomas Wayne. But yeah. then it's revealed he was adopted, so they don't actually there's this idea and there's this studies that prove that like mental illness can be hereditary but if they're not related why do they have the exact same mental illness and why is it presenting in the exact same way yeah i, I again like i think we're we're kind of quibbling 
Because, yeah, here's the other thing, too. And I don't want to say, like, oh, they got the Joker wrong. But I do think they missed part of the appeal of the Joker is that he, he has no origin story compared to Batman. Batman, it's very black and white. Mm-hmm. Like, he's, he's aggrieved by the loss of his parents, and so he wants to enact justice. Mm-hmm. Now, granted there's a lot of implications in that he's also a rich kid and basically can without superpowers like basically builds himself to be a superhero using his wealth there's that implication but that works perfectly with the joker who instead of like an object of fear is like a object of amusement and he has no like aggrievement or anything kind of relating to batman he's the exact foil to him like Mm -hmm. he's got no so when you do position him as this character who is like oh like bullied and and uh, an object of your pity it doesn't work and also you know it doesn't work this movie is no fun no it's like at no point for a movie is called the, joker, is the joker it's not very funny <laughs> no <laughs> at no point is the joker like actually enjoying like the anarchy or crime that he's eliciting there's only one scene and and i i would to use a critic's cliche call it transporting mm-hmm. it's I, I was desperately wondering, like, when is he going to actually become the Joker? Because it doesn't happen until about two, two-thirds of the way through the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's after he's committed his first violent assault. That's another thing, too. It, it, it makes him look like a thug rather than, like, the crafty villain, which he really is. But, uh, we'll, again, we'll gloss over that. I don't okay, well, into, like, I mean, well, remind me to get back to that, because that is actually part yeah. of the compliment sandwich I want to give, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but my favorite scene is the one that plays in all the trailers and everybody is actually admiring and it's the scene with him on the steps like dancing to Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Note Part 2 mm-hmm. like that's the scene like okay finally he's like kind of like identified with himself and is actually enjoying it like but the rest of the time he's still like a, a dirge and in spite of the smile that he paints on his face he, uh, Joaquin Phoenix basically frowns the entire time yeah pretty much there's I mean that's literally the opening yeah, scene is him trying fun. to force himself to smile <laughs> yeah <laughs> And so, yeah, like, God bless him how committed he is to the role or whatever, but it's it's still, like, a not a very... I don't I didn't find it a very compelling performance in a not very compelling film. No. Um, because it's written so confusingly. Yeah, it, it really, I think, and ultimately, I think it comes down to the fact that you either could have had a character study or you could yeah. have had a movie that was, like, an indictment of society. But this movie tries <laughs> yeah. to be both, and it gets really, really confused. <laughs> Um, yeah. One of the things, though, I do want to give the com- I want to compliment the movie on is the fact that I do appreciate the fact that it presents the Joker as basically a bumbling idiot fool, and who just kind of yeah. falls into being a revolutionary, not by intention but by pure accident. And there, there's been a lot. I, I was trying to avoid it, but we have to. We can't talk about this movie without talking about Heath Ledger's Joker from The Dark Knight. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's an agent of chaos, and obviously one of the big contradictory moments is he says do i look like the kind of guy who has a plan i'm just a dog chasing cars (laughs) and what's nice is and a sharp contrast to that is that in this movie yes he technically is a dog chasing cars there is really no logic to anything he's doing and he really just kind of manages to get away by sheer luck and i think that's appropriate for a character who is mentally ill like he doesn't really have a plan and he doesn't really uh intend to cause riots like he does in this movie but so i i kind of want to give it credit for that that's one of the few moments where the movie's not utterly confused so good job guys you at least got that down <laughs> I, I i don't know i i didn't admire it for that i mm-hmm. i wanted him to be connected because I, I guess this is based on our interpretation of, of the character and what we like about him mm-hmm. i do like it when he's conniving when he has like 
schemes that may point something out. Like, if we're going to talk about Heath Ledger's Joker, like, I do like the the plan in which a prisoner of boats, uh, a prison full, or a prison, sorry, <laughs> a prison a full of, of prisoners. <laughs> yes, a prison full of boats. Now that is cool. <laughs> um, uh, a boat full of prisoners versus the boat full of, of regular citizens and they control each other's fates in their hands. Like that, I, that I liked. And that's kind of what I was hoping for, like some kind of cleverness. Mm. Instead, it, the climax of the movie takes place. He, he gets on his show, he gets on this late night talk show out of sheer luck. I thought if this movie's just going to try to be the king of comedy, at least make it like the king of comedy and have him be the agent of him getting on the show, not yeah. just like them calling him out of the blue. Um, because they showed his t- his segment out of the blue, and it's not that like also funny, whatever yeah, cracks. Also another yeah. incongruous thing. It, this takes place in the 1980s, but relies on a video going viral. Like that was even a yeah. thing back then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I thought like make it America, uh, make it a, a a jaywalking or the silly headlines segment from Jay Leno's show or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like make it make it part of that show, but whatever. They don't care. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of Robert De Niro in this movie? He still kind of seemed like he was sleepwalking a little bit, his normal kind of like... A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if he is just playing the Jerry Lewis character in The King of Comedy, like, yeah, he's just got to play frustrated instead. Mm-hmm. It's not like he's he's engaging and, and affable, really. Like, or he is on camera, like, that's fine. But, yeah, like, off. It's not like he... He just doesn't have a whole lot to do. That's true, yeah. <laughs> like, nobody really has a whole lot to do. It's such a kind of thinly written mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a really well-thought-out movie, and uh, it doesn't really cohere no. by the end. But in terms of filmmaking, it looks gorgeous. Like, it looks I, yeah, good. That, like, I'm really I'm really that, trying hard to dig for compliments on this movie. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, even everything I can praise it on, I, like, I kind of veer off into this negativity, like, oh, the the atmosphere. Like, And I was like, no, the score's terrible. Mm. Like, the score's just this dirge that just... Because the images isn't really giving you the the atmosphere, the tone, the the uh, score has to do all the work yeah. in establishing the tone. And, like, and yeah, the very cinematography, obvious production... Is, yeah, like, they yeah. use Frank Sinatra way too much, because again, Scorsese, they're trying to go for a... Yeah. a like, and that's the thing, like, it's, it's basically just doing Scorsese for Scorsese's sake. Like, it's yeah. got the tone, it's got the, the, the right atmosphere, but it's like, for what purpose? Again, like, for no reason. Much like the rest of this movie, it doesn't really exist for any yeah. reason. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess to bring it back to your original compliment, like yes, it's nice that a major studio can put uh, buffo <laughs> buffo budgets behind what is essentially a character study slash crime thriller, mm-hmm. and not a special effects extravaganza that is I don't know just designed to to numb you like a theme park ride. Yeah, or um, play well in China. But that said, like the end, I can only judge the results, and there it's like a C plus. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so annoying too because this this has taken all the oxygen out of film discussion, and it's just for a, a dull piece of crap. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah. I did. I am I communicating that I didn't enjoy it? I did not have a good time at the movies. <laughs> yeah. Not that I'm expecting, like you know, like not that I'm expecting a, an MCU theme park ride or whatever, or, but yeah, like hey, Scorsese does it better. How about that? <laughs> That's true. Yeah, if only yeah. Scorsese did it. Instead, he was too busy with the Irishman. Yeah, I know. Netflix garbage. That's what you hire Adam Sandler for. <laughs> um, who are you to adjudicate uh, 
Martin Scorsese, who are you to, to adjudicate what cinema is is not or isn't mm. uh, when you go to Netflix, mm. watching movies on your television or your phone? Ugh. Ugh. I know. Captain America, the Winter Soldier is really cinema, okay? <laughs> <laughs> the scene where he fights in the elevator and then surfs on his shield to get away from... <laughs> That's real cinema. It's about drone warfare when you really get right yeah. down to it. It's about the surveillance state. Like, yeah. kind of. <laughs> yeah. Sure. The Winter Soldier is about the surveillance state as much as this movie is about class struggle. Yeah. It's there. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the, I do want to reiterate uh, another great point I heard. Um, so coming out of the Venice Film Festival, which actually, God bless them, I knew they knew exactly what they were doing voting this to be the best movie of the Venice Film Festival. They're like, we're going to get such a good laugh out of this. <laughs> like... <laughs> But in doing this big studio mediocre thriller, giving this the Golden Lion Award. But anyway, the big discussion point out of Venice was like, oh, is this dangerous? Uh, it looks like they're extolling the virtues of an incel character. Mm-hmm. And really, this movie has nothing to do with uh, with. I mean, he is sexist, but or he yeah. is sexless, but yeah, not not. It's not really about that. Yeah. But it's a it's a great talking point for our politics because it, it is much more about a class struggle, mm-hmm. and. Uh, basically a, a a working class person taking on the elite, in this case, Thomas Wayne. Mm-hmm. But what our media is doing is not focusing on that. Instead, they're focusing on the politics of identity and saying, like, no, you belong in this group over here and this group over here, and we're going to favor this group over this one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe we'll do a story where, you, where we go into the uh, a safari and um, explore the working class uh, clowns that, that would vote for a certain politician. But <laughs> <laughs> And it just demonstrates that... It, basically demonstrates how the media will not really focus on the politics as it is. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, exactly. It's more, it, it behooves you to be more politics adjacent, which is why the MCU yes. kind of works, and so does uh, um, uh, the Blumhouse productions, because it's like they, they point to it and they go like, ooh, look, heady ideas, right, guys? And it's like, not really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Aren't we being smart? So, yeah. yeah. This movie is the right level of, I guess, politics adjacent, where it's not it's not really going to offend anybody or cause, I don't know, three Wall Street bankers to be shot on a subway train. No, but... absolutely not. No. <laughs> yeah. I guess it was also the Aurora, Colorado sh- uh, shooting, which apparently everyone ties to the, the Dark Knight Rises, like, for some reason, even though that's kind of a misnomer. Like, that was kind of misreported. Exa- yeah, he went he went where the crowds were. Exactly. He was a violent psychopath, not because... Yeah, he dyed his hair, but he wouldn't. He didn't dress up as the Joker, which is a lot of spurious reports say. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, whatever. This is exhausting. Speaking of exhausting, it, it is exhausting. <laughs> yeah, it's trying to bring it home with I'm plugs. Tired. We're yes. bringing it home with plugs. So, if you want to connect with us, you can always connect to us on social media, with our Twitter, with our Instagram, and with our Facebook pages. Yeah, let us know what you thought of of Joker. Um, if you're not exhausted by talking about it by now, <laughs> yeah, we're already like three weeks late. <laughs> Yeah, or talk talk to us about anything else, really. I I want to continue to extol the virtues of Little Shop of Horrors, but uh, we'll we'll move on. We'll we'll move on to whatever the next uh, big cinematic talking point is on Twitter or Facebook. But you can also get in touch with us personally mm-hmm. at aspiringsnobs at gmail dot com. We do take recommendations there. We do take uh, listener questions, and we'll read them on air if you have them. Yep. And, uh, yeah, leave us your comments. And also leave us your reviews. Go to that uh, podcast service that you're currently using right now and rate us five stars. Because when you rate us five stars, 
you help other people find us. You push us to the top of the algorithm, and then our voices get heard. And you know what? Yes. We get representation. All right? Yes. We're the, we live in a society. <laughs> we're the lower classes here, and we're trying to build our way up. We're trying to knock down yeah. those... Uh, who's at the top of the charts? Joe Rogan? Yeah, the 1% yeah. Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that guy. Yeah. I'm trying to think, what other, like, what are the top of the, because the chart used to keep changing. It used yeah. to be Serial, and then S-Town, and then, I don't, it's I don't know. It's whatever This yeah. American Life is doing. <laughs> whatever. Okay, yeah. Whatever, John. The throne is empty. It's ours to take. Uh, of okay. course. <laughs> well, Greg, the, the throne's probably been melted. Like, the think of it as like the end of uh, Game of Thrones. Like the oh, dragon. I thought you were talking about the end of Veep. Um. <laughs> Does HBO have any shows left? <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, they're, they're filling the pipeline with other big spectacles like Watchmen and uh, yeah. The yeah. Golden Compass, blah, blah, blah. Yep. That's fine. That's not what we're watching next week. No. What we are watching next week is, yes, another 80s movie. I'm sorry. Ugh, but we don't like to repeat ourselves. But we... I know, but it behooves us to keep in touch with the schedule. It's another uh, thriller. Mm-hmm. Ooh, it could it could kind of fall in the horror genre, but it's more sci-fi this time, John. Yes, that's right. We're talking James Cameron's The Terminator. Yeah, I don't think you either you or I have seen it. Nope, we have but not. But there's no, but now there's a fifth sequel or <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where we are in the timeline. Yeah. The timeline keeps getting jumbled, so it's I, I don't know, do they call like Alien Covenant a sequel or is it a prequel or I don't know. That one is help. technically a prequel cuz the alien's not a thing yet. The alien gets created in that movie. So Okay. Yeah. But this one this one is a sequel sequel cuz they're bringing back uh, Sarah Linda. Connor. Linda. Yeah. yeah. I was about to I was about to say Linda Connor. <laughs> no, it's Linda Hamilton <laughs> as Sarah Connor. And there's an old Arnold. I don't know why he he ages, but um Yeah. <laughs> And they keep, like, coming up with new Terminators, even though, like, the T-1000 is still the most perfected machine. <laughs> like, it's yeah. literally liquid goo. Why do they think, like, oh, yes. we'll put liquid goo over an exoskeleton. That'll be even better. <laughs> yeah. Why do they keep doing this, that? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. There's got to be a joke with, like, let's hit the upgrade. Like, ooh, now it's black and worse. <laughs> ooh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure they'll hang a lampshade on it. I I, I think this movie, <laughs> I'm at, at five sequels in, and they know they're all trash. They have to, because they always do like the cheesy like "I'll be back" or they always have to like "Come with me if you want to live." Like they're so, yeah. they're kind of like on the cusp of self-aware, but not like too self-aware that it's like no one's gonna take them seriously anymore. Even though everyone gave up taking these movies seriously eons ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's just the shiny objects or whatever to dangle. Like, it's Bread just the and keys circuses. to dangle over. Bread and circuses. For an audience of babies. But yeah, I don't know what babies are <laughs> still enamored with the Terminator uh, film franchise. However, we're going to find out yep. uh, by looking back at the original. All right. Yep. Yep. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> until then, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring. That was pretty good, Arnold, right? That was a very good Arnold. Oh, yeah. thank you, thank you. I, I'm sure <laughs> I mean, we, I wasn't dicking for yeah. a couple of minutes, but I kind of was. <laughs> and your motorcycle. The man says no, Arnie throws him on the stove. He's defended by his friends, but Arnie batters them both. He grabs his keys and his gun, and then he is done. 
Can't let you take the man's wheels, son. He takes his shotgun and glasses without having to fight. Then he gets on his bike and rides through the night. By a bridge far away in an area more urban, a policeman checks out an electrical disturbance. T-1000 jumps out and drops the shot copper, steals the cop's wheels and investigates John Connor. Sarah Connor's story's sad. Everyone thinks she's mad. A soldier from the future is really John's dad. He told her what's in store, some futuristic war. They fought a robot army back in 1984. Despite what he said.